Well, hey, everybody. Welcome to a new episode of Streamed and Screened, except Record Scratch. This is not a new episode of Streamed and Screened. This is from the archives, episode eight, going all the way back to June 1st, 2020, where we did a roundup of summer blockbusters and we had a really great time. So you'll probably hear us talk about Just To Be Nominated, which was the older name of this show, but enjoy. We'll have links in the show notes to all the movies that we talked about. And uh, yeah, thank you so much. So take it away, Jared, Bruce, and Chris from the past. Hi there, and welcome to Just To Be Nominated, a podcast about movies that is distributed by Lee Enterprises. The show is hosted by me, Chris Lay, the podcast operations manager for Lee, along with Bruce Miller, the editor of the Sioux City Journal, and Jared McNett, a reporter for the Globe Gazette in Mason City, Iowa. Last time you heard from us, we were sharing some of our favorite movies based on TV shows, since at that time there was some renewed rumors circling around the community. For this episode, which we recorded right before the Memorial Day weekend, uh, we wanted to chat about some of our favorite summer blockbusters. We'll put some of the links in the show notes to where you can stream all those as of the day the episode drops, so make sure you click on through to find those there. Anyway, here is the show. You know, the other thing for us, this is the big weekend when all of the blockbusters start. This is when it means something to moviegoers because you sit there and let it just kind of wash over you. If you can't go to Disney World or any of those other theme parks, you say, well, I will at least have a theme park at the theater. And we would have gotten Top Gun. We would have gotten Mulan. We would have gotten the James Bond film. We would have had a lot. And now we're not getting any of that. Or it's going to end up being these things where like the VOD version of it is going to cost, you know, $50 or it'll end up going to drive-in theaters. Do you think that'll come back? I mean, I think so. I mean, it seems like they've been doing good business. I don't know if there's any around here uh, in Wisconsin, that, or at least near Madison, Wisconsin. I'm sure there are some that are out there, but just not any within the immediate uh, vicinity. Some of the cineplexes have been putting screens on the outside of their building. And so you'd hmm. be in the parking lot and you could just tune into a radio station. And you could see it there. But wouldn't you just kind of take it for free anyway? For theaters, I mean, they're all their money's in concessions. Right. So if you're not, you know, going to be getting concessions or, you know, what's the what's the point? I don't know. I mean, before you jumped on this most recent time, it was uh, Jared and I were talking and I read like an article in The Ringer and they were talking about how if like when theaters open, it's going to be like alternating rows. It's going to be alternating seats within those alternating rows. So I don't know how theaters are going to make a ton of money, like enough money to validate a big push for a, even a movie like Tenet. Well, if they don't have enough product, let's say you're a Cineplex, okay? And you can show the same movie in all the theaters. And then if you have to alternate rows, we have a lot of those recliner seat theaters. And I don't want to sit by people anyway in a recliner seat. So I'm good with them every other one. And I think we're it'll be okay. I think it'll be okay. It's when you have a lot of product that you end up worrying about, is it going to be packed? Because Usually that's what happens with these big movies is it's just in a few of the theaters. But if you had Tenet in all of the theaters, you would be able to separate the people. And then the next week, just kind of call it down as you go. You'd be down to three or four theaters as it goes. 
So I think it's possible. I want to be an optimist on this. I think it's possible. I'm certainly not trying to, you know, rain on anyone's parade. I'm just, there's just a certain, a certain realism to this. And it's also, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I've got, you know, friends and family that are canceling weddings that were scheduled in October. And I mean, it's the, the uncertainty of this is just awful. Um, it is a great excuse though. If you want to get out of one of those weddings, Oh, we really can't go. Sorry. You know, pandemic gotta, gotta stay. We're just, we're quarantining at home, but we'll go there by zoom. If you want to have it on zoom. <laughs> yeah. Do you guys remember going to the, the movie theater? theater? Yes. No, just driving theaters. Do you remember those at all? Or were you not in that era? Oh, no, uh, Kansas City actually still has two that even as a couple of years ago were still operational. So, yeah, those have never really left, at least my uh, perspective. Um, I've, I've never been. The thing is, the sound is usually bad. Um, yeah. They just have those little bad speakers that you'd hang on the window. And then uh, you couldn't, you know, be... <laughs> And you think, what did they say? I'm not too sure. And at some point you'd fall asleep in the car because it was, you know, you're in the car. But I do think with, you know, better technology now, you can do it through the radio airwaves and you'd be able to hear better and you'd have it through your own stereo system. Your battery could die on your car. But I do think it is a way to get, to get into that. But it can't last. It can't last because... We want that communal atmosphere that comes from sitting with other people and hearing things. So I think that we will see us back in theaters before long. Chris, let me tell you that you have not lived until you've seen 1998's Meet the Deedles at a drive-in movie theater. I think uh, if <laughs> if that's what's keeping me from ever living, I think I'm fine <laughs> with being <laughs> The Walking Dead. I have... <laughs> no interest in watching Meet the Deedles on a side of a truck. <laughs> no the joy of drive-in movies was you'd got different kind of food at the concession stand. Now all that food is available and you even get liquor at a movie theater. So, Which would have helped with Meet the Deedles. Yeah, it would have helped. It would have been a real good way of, of pushing this. And you're both too young to remember the time when this all started. Because Jaws is considered the first blockbuster. Yeah. It's the first one that kicked it all off. And they really never did program for a summer season. They never thought a certain kind of film would work better at a different time of year. Well, these high concept um, action filled films really kind of took off in 1975 when Jaws opened mm -hmm. because they got such a huge response. They couldn't believe that there would be an audience that just wanted to see a certain type of film. And so as a result, they started planning. And of course, we got Star Wars. We got Back to the Future. We got a lot of those big ones that were just geared up for the summer season. And um, interestingly enough, I was working in Indianapolis in 1977 when Star Wars came out. And I did a story um, about what people eat at movies. Now, it was easier to track back then because they were single theaters. You only went to one theater and that was the only movie it had. Yeah. Cineplexes were not that big. So you could actually track what people ate at the movie theaters. And we found out from that survey that if you went to an action film like Jaws, like Star Wars, you would eat anything and everything. <laughs> if you went to a drama or a romance, you probably did not eat that much. So this really impacts concession sales. And as a result, they said, oh, let's make a lot of money off that. And they sell a ton of popcorn 
and a lot of soft drinks just because the kind of film that they're showing has that kind of uh, effect on people. Yeah. It's an amusement park. It is. It is. It's really. And, you know, for a lot of people, it's that's our big our big kind of vacation is to go see something like this. That's so over the top. You look at Jurassic Park and you think I would never be able to go to a place like that if it existed. But you can in the movies and you can the way they have the sense around kind of sound, the uh, different kinds of screens, the 3D, all those kind of elements can actually make you feel like you're in in that atmosphere. Mm -hmm. We don't have that at home. It's not that good at home. Yeah. But I think you can see where there absolutely is an audience and a market for this. Remember, a couple of years ago, they tried to push the idea of most popular film on the Academy Awards. Well, that's a stupid idea because that just says you're pandering to one of these summer films that isn't going to get any Oscar nominations except special effects. But it is a good way of letting people know that, you know, yeah, there is a market for this. Yeah. It's interesting you bring up the Oscars because things have changed, I think, you know, in the past handful of years. And I know there are a couple of films that both I and and Jared are going to, you know, bring up that uh, definitely were either nominated for Best Picture or, you know, got Best Actor noms. Um, but, it's, but you are correct. I mean, it's usually just if a summer blockbuster is going to get anything, it's going to be a special effects or, you know, sound design or something. Yeah, it's rare when you see, like, all these superhero films. Name one besides Heath Ledger that won a Best Acting Award for a superhero film, you know? Yeah. That's it. So they're not expected to win Oscars. They make their their they get their prize in the money that they make because they make yeah. a ton of money, a ton of money. Yeah. And you look over the years, Steven Spielberg has just dominated the summer marketplace. Um, the idea that he had, you know, Raiders of the Lost Ark, E.T. He produced Back to the Future. He had just so many of those. He knew the formula. And then it was a matter of other people just kind of catching on and saying, OK, how can we do that, too? Money is the greatest Oscar of all. <laughs> you can buy an Oscar. Did you know that? You could also buy an Oscar from somebody who won one and needs the money because they aren't making enough money in their other uh, endeavors. So, you know, Michael Jackson owned an Oscar. He never won one, but he bought one. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, you just got to set up a set up a little Google alert, uh, you know, for Cuba Gooding Jr. Oscar. And uh, <laughs> it's there. Might be there for you. You need a guy like Howie from Uncut Gems to find you like pawned off, you know, championship rings and some Oscars that people had to sell because they were down on their luck. You just got to find the right plug. You bring up Uncut Gems. And I, I absolutely feel like the... Adam Sandler being overlooked by the Oscars is going to end up sticking in the craw of history. It is going to just chafe because he was so good and didn't even get a nomination. And now what he's doing in a basketball movie with, um, with Netflix, right? With LeBron's yep. production company. Yep. Fantastic. He'll be back and they never win for the movie that they really were best in. Look at poor old Paul Newman. He should have won many times. And then he gets it for Color of Money. Really? Or Jeff Bridges. There's so many of them. Let me talk about Color of Money. I mean, that was, you know, I mean, Scorsese is, is another great example of someone who won for the first time after multiple times he probably should have taken, you know, I mean, he just, just flattened the, the competition. One, one, what for him was a pretty paint by numbers movie. It was The Departed, right? Yeah. Which is still, it's a great movie. Yeah. Yeah, it's just, it's not the best. 
And that's the problem. Okay, summer blockbusters. What are your favorites? Well, Chris and I uh, definitely had some overlap. Um, and I'm sure we might with you too, Bruce. The, the first one that I had, um, and I don't know how many of your guys are going to be nostalgia picks. This is probably my only nostalgia pick. Um, and it's uh, Spider-Man from 2002. Um, Who was Spider-Man at that time? Uh, that was uh, Tobey Maguire. Directed by Sam Raimi. Yes, and that one I remember just how excited I was as like a 12-year-old kid to see that movie. And then all of that excitement, like actually being rewarded when I went and saw the movie opening weekend in Kansas City. And like obviously the, you know, we're talking about the, the, all the history of like blockbusters and everything. And like the the Tim Burton Batman movies are obviously like the forerunner and made gobs of money and were critically successful. But it's easier, I think, to make the case for Spider-Man being the logical starting point for the, like the era of superhero movies that we're in now, for better or worse, a lot of times for worse. And I think probably other than like um, maybe like Christopher Nolan and Taika Waititi, Sam Raimi's probably the most talented director still that's done a superhero movie, and I think that really shows in Spider-Man. It's a lot of fun, and like Green Goblin is still a pretty scary villain the way it's done, and I just really... That, that's it's what a summer blockbuster should be. It's fun. Um, it's not terrible. And yeah. I mean, it's interesting because I mean, like where the, the Marvel Cinematic Universe is right now, it seems almost to shave off the edges of any kind of auteur like approach that they have outside of maybe, like you said, Taika Waititi. But yeah. Spider-Man, it manages to be it, it was it was the first comic book movie that felt like a comic book yep absolutely but also you know had 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 a foot solidly in reality and also uh jk simmons as J. Jonah jameson is the most perfect casting decision in i mean the history of hollywood maybe <laughs> it could not be better because as a kid i remember watching like the the, the animated show and like when I saw the movie and saw him as J. Jonah Jameson, I was like, that's him. That's him as a real person. This is like incredible. Yep. Yeah, that, that movie's just such a joy. I, I haven't watched it in years, but I'm sure all the flood of nostalgia would just come rushing back. And I saw that even right now. Yeah, I think it's on Hulu. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it is. I checked. Yeah. The thing I hate about Spider Man, any, any iteration, and it's the same with mm -hmm. Batman too, is they always want to go back to the beginning. I don't need yeah. the origin story on every one of these ones because every time they've rebooted Spider-Man, they go back to the beginning and it's like, oh, please, let's move on. And that's what they need to do. You don't want to see Uncle Ben shot to death again? No, no, I do not. Yeah, the the latest iteration of, of the Spider-Man franchise is perfect, I think, because it just glossed all over that for the most part. It just kind of threw you right in the mix, didn't you know, give you this whole, you know, with great power comes great, great responsibility. I mean, it's in there, but it's not hit with the same ferocity that every single one of the other reboots. I mean, we've been through what, like four different restarts of the Spider-Man franchise. It's, it's, it's funny because like, it used to be that only for, for horror movies, um, was it a bad idea to do like origin stories? And that was for like the villains in those movies. But now at this point too, it's really trying people's patience to do, keep doing origin stories for, heroes especially in superhero movies like people yeah. people don't either want it or they just don't want to rehash it or a yeah. little bit of both well you know that was what was the joy about star wars in the beginning 
is they kind of dropped you in the middle of this world that you had no idea what it was. Mm-hmm. Right. And you had to kind of figure it out on your own. And I think when they're too literal, when they're spelling out every little thing, it's like, oh, please, we've been here. We've done this. Move on. And they use the same villain in every one of those ones when they start rebooting the stuff. And I hate that. So if I can throw my favorite um, superhero one, I do like The Dark Knight. I do think that because of Heath Ledger and the really, really darkness of that, Mm -hmm. I think that's a cool one. And you can find that one. I think it's on, is it on Hulu this summer? It is. I watched it this morning. So that's my favorite from the superhero world. And I think Spider-Man to Dark Knight, I consider that like the bookend of that first wave of comic book movies before the Marvel Universe really asserted itself and said, this is how you make, you know, and, and turned it into this like thing where you can, you know, totally commodified. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I think, yeah, the dark Knight was the last one that felt, I mean, very auteurish, I guess. And yeah, the, the third, I don't, I don't ever have any interest in probably rewatching that movie ever again, the third one. So yeah. Well, and that, one, that, that one's good, but yeah, even that one at that point feels very self-conscious about like the movie that it's trying to follow up. Yeah. Are you even interested in the Robert Pattinson Batman? Actually, I I am. Yeah. Because? Well, part of it is I'm actually a really big Batman fan. Like Batman, as has been proven on an episode or two already, Batman is like my favorite uh, superhero because I think there's a lot you can do with it. And I also have faith in the director because it's Matt Reeves who did the really fantastic newer Planet of the Apes movies. And then the cast is pretty bonkers. Like you've got... Uh, I think my favorite is Colin Farrell is going to be the penguin, which just makes my head hurt. <laughs> but I'm also excited to see how that works. I would love to see it in black and white. I don't know if they're thinking in that direction, but that would make me interested in it. I think you've got to really turn it on its head if you're going to try and redo it. I don't yeah. think you mm-hmm. can go back. Oh, like Ben Affleck being Batman. Really? What was that all about? It's. I think maybe a, a possible way forward for like superhero movies in particular is like the... To me, like the idealized version of like a lot of music biopics is to just focus on a very specific point in like a musician's life. And I think a lot of superhero movies could maybe benefit from that too. focus on like a very, very specific story. Because like even The Dark Knight is focusing on specifically like two different comics and really not a lot um, past that. And I think that's the best thing you can do if you're going to make a superhero movie is to focus on on one or two ideas that have maybe been done before and then kind of tweaking those a little bit for your own kind of liking. Mm-hmm. Well, Bruce, you mentioned black and white and one of my absolute all time, uh, you know, favorite is a movie that got released as a special edition in black and white. And that's Mad Max Fury Road. There we oh, go. There's wow. the transition. Oh, that's a good one. There was uh, an oral history that came out in Esquire, I believe last week or the week before um, of the making of Mad Max. Cause it is the, the fifth anniversary of it this year. And yeah, the movie holds up. It is just the gnarliest, most, you know, joy inducing uh, cinematic experience I've probably had in a theater or at home or any anywhere else in forever. It is absolutely fantastic. George Miller of Happy Feet fame. Really <laughs> best known, best known movie. <laughs> um, knocking it out of the park. Tom Hardy is great, but Furiosa with uh, Charlize Theron carries that whole film and the effects are amazing. The fact that they were so committed to the practicality of, you know, real cars 
And I mean, it's so good. It's a perfect action movie. Like if you if you told me that George Miller basically just spent the the thirty years between uh, Thunderdome and Fury Road just whittling this particular movie down into a hundred and twenty minute desert uh, derby, I like totally believe you because mm-hmm. it's just it's an hour long chase into the desert and then an hour long chase back out of the desert, which shouldn't work as a movie because that's that's not a movie. That's barely an idea. But yeah, because of like you were talking about, Chris, like all the practical effects and just like how good those practical effects pay off and how mm-hmm. great Tom Hardy is and Charlie's Theron. And I don't even remember who plays uh, Immortan Joe, but like there's nothing wrong with that movie. And I remember leaving the theater after I saw it, which was also in grad school and a much better experience than seeing uh, Batman versus Superman in grad school. Um I remember leaving the theater after Fury Road and just like wanting to haul ass down the interstate with like <laughs> four friends just swinging like spiked baseball bats out of the window as I'm blasting like Iron Maiden. Like it's that movie is just like the most primal kind of movie. And I love it for that. Yeah. Every single like the first time you watch that movie, you see one insane thing. And you're like, there's no way they're going to top this. And then something will happen 10 minutes later. And you're like, there's no way they're going to top this. <laughs> yeah. Wait 10 minutes. And it just keeps topping these incredible moments one after another. And yeah, wait for the wait for the blind man strapped down playing guitar. Jeez. Yeah. I mean, that the guy with the bullets for teeth. <laughs> It's just absolutely insane. Bruce, you were talking about how one of the great things with Star Wars is that the original one kind of just drops you into the action, which is definitely true, too, for Fury Road. Like, there's not a lot of learning curve to Mad Max Fury Road. Okay, here's one for you. How different is it from Fast and Furious? Honestly, Fast and the Furious is more plot-heavy and dense than, than Fury Road is, even, which is funny to think about, but it's definitely true. Yeah. And both of them feature Charlize Theron, oddly enough. Hmm. But I think one is more of a populist film and one is a more thinking man's film. Yes. Now, you decide which is which, right? <laughs> <laughs> Can I throw an old one? Because I know you never Please. saw it when it came out, but that's Back to the Future. I really do love Back to the Future. And when you look at it now, you've got to go back, and especially the last one where you see where they project into the future, mm-hmm. and it's already passed for us. Where they have Biff, who's like, "Well, I you'd have to. I don't want to. I don't want to spill it because it's like, oh, oh, wait a minute, this is happening. We're living with Biff right now." But um, <laughs> it's on Netflix, and it is one of those kind of cool things that you think, "Wow, imagine that!" And it's very popcorn. It's a real popcorn movie. But I love it. And they're talking about a reboot of it. And that could be an interesting thing. Would it work? I don't think so. Unless it's done correctly, obviously. But it's, uh, I mean, it seems like such a huge risk to take with very little payoff. I've, I feel like even, I see the the likelihood of them doing a reboot of that, that would be any different or better than, say, the um, the Paul Feig reboot of Ghostbusters. Which, I mean, obviously there was like a gender swap, you know, in the roles type thing, which we're not talking about with um, Back to the Future. But, I mean, Back to the Future is just, it's it's an absolutely perfect script. It is this incredible film down to its absolute foundation. And I think it's going to be really hard to, to get that alchemy correct again. Could you do some of the stuff? No, because it's kind of fun having the very simple effects that they use to get the thing going. 
It's one, though, that I wish that they'd think about bringing some of these movies back to theaters where you could actually <clears> sit and watch it in the environment that it started in, not just have to watch it at home and you go, oh, yeah, OK, it's good. But where you sat there and you kind of felt that that energy that came through being with other people. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I I would like to see a, a, a Back to the Future prequel where we find out just how exactly Doc Brown ends up like getting into teeth with the terrorists. <laughs> that's just kind of weirdly yada yada in the original movie. Yeah. Like there's just these Libyan terrorists, which they would probably have to change that now who are like after him because he was trying to help him build a nuke or something. And I, I want to know more about how exactly that happened. Cause Doc Brown might not be as wholesome as he's made out to be then if he stumbled into working with terrorists. Yeah. There's a comedian that's got a whole routine about this, but it's also the fact that Marty is just pals with a, with a scientist, <laughs> like is yeah. completely glossed over, you know, it's, and it's never <laughs> really clarified at all. Well, Chris, what's on your list? Well, actually, I was going to go to Jared because I feel like did we did we skip you for your your second one, Jared? Yeah. So we, I've done uh, Spider Man, and like I said, we're going to have a lot of overlap. With I think these, so. But, yeah. Um, the next one of mine that I definitely had to include on this, and it's kind of um, an anti summer blockbuster pick in some ways, uh, and that's uh, RoboCop because basically RoboCop is. Paul Verhoeven's invective against corporate domination of every facet of society, which is kind of what a summer blockbuster is now. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think RoboCop is one of the like handful of movies from the past 30 years that you can still rightly call satire in the way that that word is like meant to be used. Mm-hmm. It's like RoboCop, maybe what, sorry to bother you, Nightcrawler and like idiocracy. And maybe that's it. There might be something I'm missing that's clearing, but like, to me, those are like pure and like uncut and distilled, uh, undistilled uh, satires. And I, I love Robocop for that. It works as an action movie. It works as a sci-fi movie. It works as a satire. It It's firing on all cylinders all the way. It's subversive uh, for so many reasons. Um, not just the fact that he was able to Trojan horse this, you know, very anti-capitalist message in, you know, a, a tentpole film that is so profoundly gory <laughs> what is the i mean somebody actually counted up the number of bullets that go into that guy in the, the x-rated cut of it uh in the boardroom <laughs> like it feels violent watching it now still and it still feels weird like that movie is weird and i i can't even imagine what um orion or whoever it was that put it out originally thought when they finally got a cut of that because it's it's a bizarre movie yeah. and like you've got like the not as much as like Starship Troopers, but there's still like the, the fake ads and stuff in RoboCop. And there's just, it's so disorienting the first time you watch it. Um, yeah. Next up for me, I had True Lies. Yes. yes oh, yes, True yes. Lies. That's a good one. Um, yeah. True Lies, which there are any number of Arnold Schwarzenegger summer blockbusters you could pick. And like for my list, I tried to go a little bit off the beaten path as, as we'll see. Um, but I mean, it's Arnold Schwarzenegger and James Cameron together again in uh, 94 and it is somehow almost equal parts comedy and action. And I don't know why James Cameron has never really come back to that approach. There really aren't that many James Cameron movies that are comedic. And this one has so many great moments. I feel like, I mean, Tom Arnold and Bill Paxton both almost steal the entire film out from under Arnold Schwarzenegger and Jamie Lee Curtis, which is, absurd to even 
think that that's possible, but they absolutely do. And yeah, it's always great to see Tia Carrera in, in anything. I don't know what the hell happened to her, but, um, she won a Grammy. Really? What for? for Hawaiian music. Yep. Oh my gosh. Triple threat. <laughs> I don't know if she can dance though. We might be missing there. Well, she can, she can shimmy. She can play guitar in Wayne's world. So there you go. <laughs> or no bass. She played bass in Wayne's. World. I, I hope her, uh, albums of like, uh, Hawaiian music have some kind of covers of some of the stuff in Wayne's world. Cause that would be, <laughs> that would be ideal. But yeah, True Lies is, I feel like, yeah, it hasn't, people have uh, overlooked it in the years since it came out, and it is very well worth anybody uh, jumping back in and, and checking out. Well, and, and part of that too is just owed to the fact that like the movies that James Cameron did surrounding that are even bigger somehow, so that's part of why I feel like True Lies now is kind of forgotten about, because Terminator 2 was right before that, and Titanic was right after, and then obviously since then he's only done Avatar, so. Yeah. I went. I was on the junket for True Lies back in the day. Oh, really? And um, oh, yeah. And it was very fun because you saw them very excited about a project that you know it did work. It worked, but it never. They never had the idea that it was going to be as huge as it was. And the interesting thing was, is Arnold would he'd say, "Do you want me to record a phone message for you?" <laughs> and so you'd get Arnold's. Hello, this is Arnold Schwarzenegger. Bruce is not in right now. Please leave a message. He'll be back. And he would do things like that for you uh, because he was just try. He was the master salesman. You have never right. seen anybody sell a movie like he does. And it was always everything he did was the greatest movie ever. And, you know, you think, oh, yeah, Arnold's just saying it on this one. But it was a good one that held up. Yeah. Some of the action scenes in that are some of the best action scenes in any action movie, especially that shootout, like, in the bathroom. Oh, yeah. Where you've just got, like, tiles flying everywhere. And, like, yeah, there are some really well done action yeah. sequences in that movie. I don't think I ever put it together, but I feel like there's a couple, like, bathroom shootouts in John Wick that are very, that kind of bite from that pretty clearly. And Fallout, too. Mission Impossible Fallout. Yeah, that's right. I wish James Cameron would be so caught up in Avatar. You know, he could have made a lot of movies during this time that he's been trying to figure out how to make blue people work. Yeah, I think, <laughs> what is it? It's going to be from now until like 2027 or something like that. I'll be that dead by the time the last one comes out. So we'll see. Yeah, I think he'll be dead by the time the last one comes out. <laughs> I'm not wishing that on him, but. Yeah, I don't understand what like why he's made this his his hill to die on and it's a it's a damn shame you know um, it made a good amusement park ride at disney world but the idea that they're going after something called unobtainium we couldn't even think of a better name for the metal come on <laughs> stupid they should have just called the metal mcguffin like <laughs> Well, he got he got way too caught up in this, and then as a result, I think we're missing good movies that he could have been making yeah. in the process. James Cameron, like Avatar, has basically turned him into Marlon Brando in uh, Apocalypse Now. There you go. He's just like hanging out in a cave, just like mumbling about blue people. Yeah, I think he's more excited about it than we ever would be. It'll be interesting to see how well it does when he does, you know, get part two out there. Which is, I think, scheduled for like 2021. It's coming. I talked to um, Edie Falco, who's in it, and she said they're doing two at once. And so she went to, I think it's in New Zealand, Australia, somewhere around there they've been filming it. And she says, you don't know which one you're working on. You're just shooting scenes, and then they'll they'll cut them into two different movies. Well, I mean, it worked for 
Avengers yeah. and mm-hmm. Captain Marvel. Which somebody said they there was like an, an initial like just like a sneak sneak like snippet like photo or something, and people were clowning on it because it looks like just like a screensaver background, like the exclusive look at Avatar two. So uh, hopefully they bring it a little bit more than just one little snippet would have you believe. Yeah, I have pretty low hopes. I mean, the first Avatar, the only thing that really sold that one was the fact that the effects and the 3D um, and yeah, the, the the legacy of Avatar is has done nothing but tarnish over time, I think, with the fact that 3D films have become just the bane of, of you know, the existence of so many, you know, upscaled uh you know 3d just 3d crap i don't know it's yeah i I think part of the problem too is it's kind of the ultimate you have to see it in a theater movies in the worst kind of way yeah so jared what you got next for your third well i'm assuming somebody else had um die hard right um you've got the first die hard the one that i was going to do next is die hard with a vengeance Okay, so we can, we can. I'll talk about Die Hard, and then I'll toss you the alley oop, and you can slam it down for Die Hard with a Vengeance. The, <laughs> the second movie is garbage and is the worst one of the original three by far. But anyway, yeah, uh, the original Die Hard from '88, uh, which uh, John McTiernan did, as he did uh, Die Hard with a Vengeance. Uh, it was the first R-rated movie that I ever saw, and it's one of those um, movies that I'll still always stop on for a few quick beats if it's on TV now, like. Deep down, Die Hard is like a really, really silly movie, and it's a pretty laughable premise, and it's like too long. Bruce always talks about movies being too long, and there's definitely stuff you could trim from Die Hard, but kind of like with um, Mad Max Fury Road, it's also a near-perfect action movie, and I I think even now it's like the template for a still absurd number of action movies, which, which says a lot about how good of a movie it is. You don't ape from other bad movies you ape from from the best and it's still one of the best action movies that's ever come out mm-hmm. i mean it marked the the rise of bruce willis who i guess i mean before that had really only been known for moonlighting and not much else and i would go further than near perfect i would say die hard is like full stop a perfect film yeah. um and i i do think it's interesting that it's it, it is absolutely a christmas film uh as 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 much if not more than it is an action film and the fact that it came out in like the middle of July. <laughs> yeah. So you like the other one though? What was the deal with that? So when I approached my list, I thought about like movies that like still feel like summer blockbusters. Like I don't, when I, when I think of the first Die Hard now, I don't think of it as a summer blockbuster film. I think of it as a Christmas movie or like th- that's generally when I watch that movie uh, now. And so that's when it's, uh, that's just kind of where it's in my head. Whereas Die Hard with a Vengeance is another movie that came out in the summer. I think it actually came out on Memorial Day weekend uh, in 95, I believe. And yeah. like like Jared said, uh, the second Die Hard is, is, a, is a limp turd, uh, basically because <laughs> it, it rehashed the plot of the first one, more or less. And just instead of having it set in a building, it was like, we're going to do this in an airport. And that's more or less about it. And, and not, not to sound like just someone on like a uh, Reddit thread somewhere, but it also just has such a stupid like plot twist or uh, like double cross or whatever that mm-hmm. is just not needed and just really clutters up the movie. even more. Yeah. Whereas that Hard with a vengeance is, I mean, it's obviously a summer movie that was released in the summer and, you know, you, you feel that the heat of, you know, the New York streets, I mean, it, it is, it has that, that summer feel to it. And it's another one very much like, um, 
like True Lies, where I feel like it's been overlooked and it absolutely holds up. Uh, Die Hard with a Vengeance is, I mean, Jeremy Irons as the villain is probably the second best villain in that series uh, behind Hans Gruber. And yeah, it's just, it's, it's so good. All of the, the weird, you know, little uh, tasks that he, that he sends them on and the puzzles that they have to solve. And I mean, I, like, I, I watched the movie yesterday and I still, if you put a gun to my head, would not know how to do the whole, you know, four gallons out of a three and a five gallon jug situation. And it's just, it's so good. Friend of mine, when I was talking about this, like pointed out that Sam Jackson has been in more franchises than oh, yeah. like anyone else. I mean, I was just about to say that, Chris, like we could have just done a list of summer blockbusters that are just movies that Sam Jackson is in because it's, it's a, an insane amount. It's Die Hard, it's Jurassic Park, Star Wars, like it's nuts. All the Marvel movies. All the Marvel movies, Triple X. He has to be the wealthiest man in Hollywood, wouldn't you think? And you wouldn't know it. Yeah. Okay. What do you think about them doing McLean? This is the first time hearing about it. What is? Uh, tell me. Tell me more. Well, Bruce. it's it's just it's just talk that there's going to be another Die Hard movie. It's called McLean, and it's likely he'll be in it. But is it going to happen? Will it happen? Will he be the McLean, or will he be McLean's dad, or you know what? What will that be? Hmm. Or is that franchise of an era that we have to just say, okay, it was then. We don't need anything now. And one of the other reasons why I put Die Hard with the Vengeance on here is because it feels like the end of of that franchise as far as I'm concerned. After yeah. Die Hard with a Vengeance, all of the films that came after definitely felt very uh, directed and, and produced by committee. They were designed to hit all the, the correct target markets in America and also be marketable in Asia. And I mean, Die Hard with a Vengeance has a you know, a solid, it, it feels unique. It doesn't, you know, feel like it sprang from a, all this market testing. Yeah. I mean, any movie that puts Bruce Willis on a street with a, like a sandwich board, you know, that has the N word on it is like, what is going on? You know, <laughs> like, he has had such an eclectic career. And yet you go back and you see that there are a lot of very, very good movies that he's been in. Yeah. You don't think of him as that kind of an actor. Mm -hmm. He should get his due. They should really think about, let's do something with him because he's good. He is good. He just had success. And then that kind of colors what you're up to. I mean, well, he's good when, when he wants to be good. That's the thing is you end up with something like Moonrise Kingdom, where he clearly wants to be in it and is really giving it his all. But then you've got what was like the Kevin Smith movie that he was in about the cops. And it's just oh, cop out. It's literally called cop out. Yeah, it is, <laughs> you know, and it's, and it's him. I mean, obviously Kevin Smith has burned that bridge uh, between the two of them by talking, going on record a number of times, but what a complete pain in the ass Bruce Willis was. Yep. I think what Bruce Willis, his, his situation now is he'll be in any movie as long as you pay him $1 million a day. Yep. And that's like his, his contract on top of anything else. Like if, if, if it's not, not something that he, I guess, pursues himself, like the Wes Anderson stuff, then it's $1 million a day and he'll be in whatever. I well, mean, you know, God bless him. <laughs> and like with them, um, it's a weird comparison at first because their acting styles are so different, but it's kind of like with Nicolas Cage where like when someone uses them correctly in a movie, they're amazing. Mm -hmm. But a lot of people don't use them correctly and 
Nicholas Cage, Bruce Willis, like you said, Chris, is just very willing to just do things for money, which is fine. Like, I'm not going to hate on him for that. But like, if you're only doing certain movies for money, not all of them are going to be good. There's going to be a lot of garbage. Yeah. I mean, Nicholas Cage, he's got to he's got to still pay for that um, that island that he owns where he keeps all of his Superman paraphernalia. Well, and now he's got he has Tiger King. So he'll be back. Yeah. Okay. So my next one, Jurassic Park. I know you guys probably go, ugh, he's picking Jurassic Park, but I loved it. I thought it was fun originally. Now I think they've gone way too far with all this stuff, but the idea, the concept was so good, and it it made a great theme park ride. I loved riding on the Jurassic Park ride where you got wet and the dinosaur came at you. Mm-hmm. But I really think it did what it needed to do. It was a typical popcorn film. And I enjoyed every bit of it. Yeah, I mean, no, I agree. And that's another one that has a very specific, like I, I remember when it came out, that was probably one of the first, you know, like more adult films that I saw in a, in a theater. And it was absolutely wonderful. I mean, I remember having the action figures of all things. Um, oh, yeah, I had a few of those too. Yeah. I, was he- I thought I was hearing Jared go, ugh. That's the worst piece of crap ever, and he picked it. Oh, no, no, no. I only feel that way about all the subsequent sequels, like every single one of them, especially the newer ones. Well, and there's another one coming, so there you go. But, you know, I I think with the, the original concept, it was a great idea where you go, yeah, that could happen. That would That's possible. And then you see where it kind of spins out, and you get the great message about um, being too greedy and what you want and <laughs> what really matters. But then you get into the Jurassic World and you go, oh, God, what is this Mm -hmm. money grab? No, I don't I don't I don't think uh, there's any modern relevance to Jurassic Park. There's no lesson to be learned about opening things back up too soon. Um, You know, like in Jurassic Park, there's no present day comparison to that whatsoever. So it's it's a movie very much of its time that nothing can be gleaned from today. So we can yeah, yeah, we can just look back on it and say, look how dumb those people were. (laughs) My next one, one of the things I was kind of using as a metric for this is some of the, the obvious ones, but then also like just any movie that came out roughly in the summer and made, I think I ended up saying like over a hundred million dollars. And so my next one is 1980 and it's the original Friday the 13th movie, which made an absurd amount of money uh, compared to its budget when it came out in 1980. It um, obviously did well enough to spawn like, I don't even know how many sequels there are now, like 12 or whatever. And for better or worse, uh, it's the one to thank for all the slasher movies we have now. Obviously, you know, Halloween came before that by two two years. And, you know, Psycho was all the way back in 1960. But most slasher movies, even now, follow more of like a Friday the 13th kind of trend than they do um, a Halloween trend. And it's even very, like, summer vibe in terms of the movie because it's these kids at a camp in the summertime um getting picked off uh one by one by one and it's it's probably not the most fun of any of the movies the fourth one the fourth Friday the 13th is still the most fun but it's definitely the best made of any of them and it's still pretty enjoyable to watch and there's still some kind of shocking stuff in it so that was my <laughs> next pick which it, it doesn't feel like a blockbuster but uh i think spiritually kind of fits into some of the vibes we've had in these movies no it checks out yeah. you know what i found is that the killer was always very moral he would kill anybody who was like not moral. Yeah. And you thought, well, that's kind of interesting, but <laughs> he's still a killer. <laughs> and that's, that's definitely another thing that makes Friday the 13th kind of the start of that is because like, and Halloween, like it was kind of incidental that there was any like morality, to like the killings, but they make that a lot more explicit in Friday the 13th that the, 
the killer is a little, or at least the yeah, the killer who's Jason's mom in the first one. Spoiler is like more doing this out of like some kind of weird perverted morals as opposed to just offing kids for no reason. So well, the kids are sleeping together and then they come up from under their bed and stab them. And you think, well, that's right. You, you should stay out of each other's bed. <laughs> if you want to see Kevin Bacon get brutalized in a movie, go watch the original Friday the Thirteenth. Okay, so what's on yours, Chris? I guess I can. Uh... Bring it back to Jurassic Park and segue into uh, Independence Day, which uh, also has has a plum uh, Jeff Goldblum role. Independence Day is another one of those movies that I saw in the theater when it came out, and I have a very special place in my heart for it. It's absolutely ridiculous, and it still has just enough. The brand of patriotism that's in that film seems very of a bygone era, but is uh very fitting and the effects were absolutely incredible the aliens are i mean kind of god awful <laughs> but yeah or will smith uh bill pullman jeff goldblum freaking, i mean judd hirsch <laughs> robert loggia <laughs> randy quaid i mean it's the, the cast is stacked and i couldn't imagine anybody else other than roland emmerich blowing up the white house and all the other world monuments um, yeah, it's, I honestly, I don't know if it holds up. I don't know if I'm recommending it by putting it on this list, but it was a summer blockbuster that I remember as being a very specific kind of summer blockbuster. And definitely very of its time too. And the fact that like, it's not like there's a lot of like the same kind of like, you know, strife and turmoil going on in the late nineties that we certainly have now worldwide. Um, so like you had to have aliens invading instead for that to be the source of your like strife and turmoil in a movie. <laughs> yeah. Okay. What did you think of the sequel? I didn't see the sequel. Oh, I had forgotten that that actually happened until right now. <laughs> yep. Well, and maybe, you know, that's where some of them go wrong. They feel they all must be a trilogy and sometimes it's good just as a one. I agree completely. And maybe this is one that should have just been a one. And we just erase the memory of the second one and never even talk about it. Yeah. Well, and speaking of uh, erasing memories, and we were talking about Sam Jackson, where we could have just done a list of Sam Jackson ones. You could do a list of, obviously, movies that Will Smith's in that are just all uh, summer blockbusters of his. Or mm. are pretty close to one. Men in Black. Yeah. Yeah, his recent ones haven't really taken off. No. At this point, like, it's... It's a kind of a punchline thing, and like most people wouldn't believe you if you told someone that was younger that, like, well, no, Will Smith was actually once like the most popular actor maybe in the world. Oh, yeah. Choices. It's all about choices. Mm -hmm. Okay, you ready for another one? Yeah, hit me. Yes. Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yep. Okay. All mine are probably based on a theme park ride and uh, old. But again, it's one of those things where you don't really know what's happening, and you're dropped in, and the original one is so fascinating that you feel like you are in another world instead of these people creating these worlds that we have to try and absorb but i think raiders of the lost ark is a great adventure and he based it off those um, those you know serials that we used to see back well we used to see huh that were out back in the early days of, of film and i think it really holds up it's good and they are talking about another one for that too so We'll see what happens. Yeah. And I mean, to kind of expand a little bit larger, and I, I think it ties into the Indiana Jones stuff as well. But when you were talking about the Independence Day sequel and they're making these these movies now just to recoup costs in, in the immediate future. I don't feel like there's a lot of these big budget movies that are designed to really burrow in into your brain and have 
for something e even as goofy as Independence Day, I have intense feelings about it, partially because I saw it at a certain age. But do you think that you know, someone who was my age when I saw Independence Day, when they saw Jurassic World, are going to feel that way about Jurassic World when they're my age? No, no. You know, it just it doesn't it doesn't track. And the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull is another example of something that was made just to, I think, kind of grab at that. And it's, it'll be the same thing with this, with this one that's coming out. Yeah. I do wonder when stuff like that does or doesn't hit because like, th obviously this is a much smaller scale, like example of a similar kind of thing. But um, like last year, God, it was last year. Yeah. When the newer uh, child's play movie came out, I went and saw that and there were quite a few teenage kids seeing that like they would have done when the original one came out. And for most of them, it didn't really, seem to land the kind of same way but like a few of them were actually like pretty excited about it but yeah it's that's a little different size of a scale than these big big very focused group sequels to movies that we might have loved when we were kids yeah i think a lot of the reason they do these is they think they're bankable and they know they're going to get the money back at least and then they could have a huge huge summer hit yeah mm -hmm. so they think ah, it's kind of a secure investment but really, is it a good investment? It may not be. I mean, it'll, it'll be interesting to see how, I mean, I think I mean, the problem that we're generally discussing is how movies are, like, I mean, the big tentpole type things that we're talking about are crafted by committee and to a certain degree. And I'm wondering how the coronavirus is going to affect all of the long-term, the marketing, the rollout, the production of these things. and that's going to end up shaking that up a little bit in a way that definitely pushes people more towards like, I mean, like the invisible man is using old IP, but in a really interesting, fresh way, mm -hmm. in the same way that the, there's like another universal one coming out. Uh, Dracula, I think it's going to be directed by Karen Kusama. I want to say mm -hmm. yes. Stuff like that. I think is going to be really interesting and the Karen Kusama Dracula might end up just being kind of ahead of the curve of where those are going, or at least that's, that's wishful thinking on my part, perhaps. Mm -hmm. This coronavirus could accelerate that whole idea of being able to create almost everything in a computer. You know mm -hmm. how they've tried to do characters and actors and bring back old dead actors and yeah. put them into films. And it might accelerate that because I think we do not like the idea of being confined. Mm -hmm. And if we have a way to see big worlds that we're not getting to, we're going to be more interested in those kinds of films, I think. Yeah. But, and so they'll say, well, we can't get out. We can't film these things. What are we going to do? Well, we'll take the head of somebody, put it in a situation, and we'll feel like we're in that world. Yeah. Did either of you guys see Unfriended? What was the movie? Unfriended. It was a horror movie that took place entirely in like the video chat of a bunch of. Was that that John? Um... Choi, is that the, what was his? That's a different one. That's a uh, searching. That one's actually pretty good. Yeah, I, you and me have different opinions on that one. But unfriended, it was a like a high school girl is I want to say either like sexually assaulted, and video of it is shared around, and she commits suicide, and then she haunts the people of. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember yeah. that. Okay. The I whole thing takes place entirely inside of the, you know, screens of yes yes i remember that okay where are we at the list i think we we're down to our uh our last ones i believe jared well, let's let's because we i feel like we glossed over a little bit so let's let's dive in a little bit more my number one pick was, was the dark knight from 2008 and i feel like we 
I'm always gonna talk more Dark Knight. Um, I that length with Spider Man, maybe even more so. That was one that I was like beyond excited as soon as I saw the even first trailer and got to see you know Heath Ledger in the the makeup and everything. And then I, I mean I saw it and it, it paid off. And that's a movie again, like with some of the other ones we've all talked about that I can watch it anytime it's on, mm-hmm. and I will probably watch it to the end from wherever it's at when I see it on TV. It's perfect as a superhero movie it's perfect as a crime movie which honestly is more of what it is than even a superhero movie and not just Heath Ledger but even you know Christian Bale is really good in that one in particular of the three movies there's just really good acting in that movie all around except for maybe Maggie Gyllenhaal who I typically like in a lot of movies but is not necessarily the best in uh in Dark Knight but uh, there's there's very little wrong with that movie other than maybe it's like 10 minutes too long, which might stay too. So, yeah, I, um, I rewatched that one this morning and I completely forgot how many huge set pieces there are in that. Like it's, it's not mm-hmm. an act one, act two, act three structure. I mean, there's like seven different things that happen. Like by the time that we get to like the fairies and the, you know, detonators, I'm like, I'm just like how I, I'd forgotten this was even in here. It also, I, I would say the first, 10 minutes of, of the dark Knight is one of the most amazing uh, and effective introductions of a character and introductions of a tone in, I I, I don't, I don't know how long, I mean, but it just, it's absolutely incredible. Yeah. The, the start of that one is another one. Like we've talked about with some of these others that just throws you right in. Mm-hmm. There's no neat little setup or introduction or anything like that. You just get tossed into the world and you have to sink or swim with it. Yep. Yeah. You know, the other, with some of those films, you always think, did they put enough light bulbs in this um, projector here? Because it seems so dark, I can't see anybody. But it made sense. It made sense with Dark Knight because it did. It was it. The tone was matching the whole. Yeah. It was the whole package, and I loved it. I loved it so much. And we were talking about subversive statements being, you know, baked in. There's that whole subplot of the surveillance state that he sets up with the cell phones that yep. Morgan Freeman's, you know, character's just like, I'm done. I can't do this. And it's it's over after this. Um yeah, which, you know, people saw as almost like a, a heel turn for for Bruce Wayne, which was interesting. And I, you know, he kind of never lived that down. It was a like he he came out on top and obviously you know, save the day ultimately ish, but at what cost? Okay, Chris, what's your other one? My last one is one, another one that I don't think I can fully recommend, but as a summer blockbuster, it's, it's uh, episode one, Star Wars episode one, the Phantom Menace. Hell yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. Of the films that I talked about, Mad Max is probably my absolute favorite, but when we're talking about summer blockbusters, especially ones that I've personally experienced in real time uh, going through, I would say episode one really captures what that feeling was in, in the history of cinema. I don't think there's ever been a movie that has been more hotly anticipated. You know, I mean, this is back before you could buy movie tickets in advance. This was, you had to wait in line outside uh, in, in the spring, spring air with your, with your lightsaber. It's not a great movie. It is very bad in a lot of respects. Yeah. Do you suppose it's a matter of where you are at a certain time in your life? It might be like the animated films that you remember most of all. Because if you look back and you say, well, I really remember this. 
because it hit at that, that kind of very specific time in life where those kind of things matter. Yeah. And so maybe it isn't necessarily the best of the bunch, but for you and at that time, it was the whole experience and it all kind of encaptures that. Well, I mean, it was, it was a collective cultural thing. I don't think there's going to be anything like that again in our lifetimes on, on that level, you know, pre cell phones, pre, you know, whatever else. And Nowadays, it's, you know, you can watch all of them in a row on Disney Plus. Whereas with me, it was like you had, you had the, the VHS box set and then you had you went and saw the remastered films, quote unquote remastered in the theaters in the mid 90s. And then you waited two, three years hearing little bits on Ain't It Cool News or whatever at the time <laughs> um, about about Star Wars Episode One. And then you finally got to see it. And then that opening crawl is all about a trade dispute. And you're just like, what? No, (laughs) what is going on? And then it just kind of unwinds from there. And I definitely, I mean, I remember, you know, talking myself into liking it the first time. And I think I definitely went back and saw it in the theater. It's the only film that I have ever at any point had a bootleg VHS of before it was released on on VHS tape. Uh, Yeah, I hope the MPAA doesn't doesn't come after me for for going on record with this. But um, Interpol is going to come after you now. (laughs) It's got got, to be a statute of limitations on on that. I wish that somebody would say to George Lucas, stop, because he always wants to go back in and mess around with his old pictures to make them whatever. And I like the idea that they were of their time and you should just enjoy kind of the the innocence of whatever it might have been. When he messed around with Star Wars, that was wrong. I saw a version of it um, with the symphony playing behind it Mm -hmm. and it was old school and it was so fun seeing the crappy sets that they had. And you think, well, don't mess with this stuff. I like we're going to shoot our own things, you know, where it sounds just stupid and they were doing things with a metal bowl and a, an electric shaver. And that was the sound effects mm-hmm. and where he tries to juice it too much. I think he ruins the innocence and I'm sure he'll mess around with your film too. <laughs> the thing that's so confusing about, about him is that he is so aggressively against the original versions of these being out. The, the original print that went out in 1977 or whatever it was, um, I don't think that like that exact version has no. ever been released. The closest you can get was he bonus discs. It came on D- on VHS, and it was still bad. I don't like those things. Yeah, Chris, are you are you saying they need to release the Snyder Cut? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. That's exactly it. Either that, or I think there were like there's still like you you can get like laserdisc rips, and that's like the last time that there was a digital quality version of it that was available um but i i will say too for for better or worse um we talked about how you know one thing that can kind of spoil superhero movies or are these origin stories and everything like that uh and I, I think that's a problem a big problem too with the phantom menace but at the same time no one is ever going to care as much again about the orphan story for some film franchise as they would when phantom menace came out yeah. there's not another film franchise anywhere that exists that people would have that level of excitement if someone told you, hey, we're going to get to go all the way back to the beginning of the story. Star Wars is the one people would care more about that. Yep. I mean, the most recent trilogy, I, you know, say what you will about the individual ones. It just didn't, people were very hotly anticipatory towards it, but it just didn't have that same, you know, it, I mean, having, having lived through the Phantom Menace and 
all of the, you know, the year long run up to that, it's like night and day between the way that people lost their minds about that and, and the, you know, the most recent trilogy individually. So that's my number one. I think, uh, Bruce, you got one left. Well, I have one more. Um, and you probably both didn't, you were probably too young. E.T. How old were you when you saw E.T.? I would have been in like elementary school, I think. Did you go? It came out the year that I was born. Um, So at some (laughs) point I saw it on, on VHS. Um, Yeah. So you didn't get the movie experience. I remember being with little kids and they were crying when they thought, spoiler alert, that (laughs) E.T. was dead. And, um, I said, no, 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 that we have a, we have movie left. Just sit still. We don't have to run home going that my world has ended because E.T. is dead. There's more to come. Yeah. And it was one of those things where you could just see how it was affecting people at the time, each frame. And it still holds up. You watch it and you'll say, why didn't they use M&Ms with this? Why did they use Reese's Pieces? Well, because it was a, a deal. Yep. And. I love E.T. I think it's real. It's real fun. You know, the interesting thing when I have films like this that I think are are something in my life, I will make sure I get the poster. I always will buy the poster for the films that I and I have way too many posters, by the way. (laughs) But E.T. was a hard one to find. And I paid a good price for it just because I thought I needed to have it Mm -hmm. in my life so I could look back and say, I own a piece of E.T. Not that there wasn't ample enough other opportunity with merchandising. I have ET. that too. I have, <laughs> I have an ET somewhere in this pile of crap. There's an ET doll that came at that point as well. Mm-hmm. So the merchandising is all a part of it. That's why you see some of these movies. You think how many characters they have in this thing. It, it goes back to the original star Wars, you know, Boba Fett was not a character that you even went out of the theater going, who is that? Yeah. Because it wasn't really one, but as time went on and you had all the, the dolls and whatnot for it, Action figures, right? <laughs> action figures, and you know they weren't even so prepared that first year where they had to give you an IOU at Christmas. So the kids are opening up a box and it says, "By the way, we don't have these done yet. You'll be getting one later." Mm-hmm. Talk about that's a real downer right there. And so then they just started creating. We had more and more characters. And so it's a matter of selling merchandise, another whole revenue stream for them. Well, that was how, I mean, obviously George Lucas has made a you know, crap load of money on the films themselves, but at the time he negotiated the the licensing deals to where he was. And, and the movie studio was just like, yeah, sure. Take it. Like, we're not going to make any money off that anyway. And, you know, everything came from that. Yeah. It's, it's more than just a movie. And I think then when they start losing sight of that, that's when it starts going south. Yeah. When you have that kind of first blush of what is this? And it's something that you can really enjoy. That's what you should have. Yeah. And then come with the merchandising afterwards, not start with it. And then well, what can we do with these characters and create it? Mm-hmm. So I'll go play with my Batman toys right now because I have a lot of those as well. Awesome. So, uh, yeah. Do you, either of you guys have any, uh, Anything going on? You got a uh, Jared. I know you're working on some articles. People can find you on in, on Twitter for that, or yes, you can find me on Twitter at Two Headed Boy ninety eight, and I'm on Instagram at Two Headed Boy ninety eight. Although that's just all food pictures, as Instagram was made. Bruce, you're gonna find me just about anywhere you want to look, right? No, if you go to SiouxCityJournal.com, you'll see a lot of the stories. Right now, I'm deeping into the um, the new fall TV season, which is going to be a very different kind of thing. 
And hmm. so I'm looking at all of the new TV shows that are that you might see in the fall hmm. that we're hoping to see. So we'll we'll take a look at that. And also, I think I looked at the Zoom generation and what we're seeing with that too. Interesting. Yeah, and you can find me, um, Totes Chris, on Twitter, and uh, I've got bylines at various places around there. So excellent. All right. Well, that is the show. And also that was the show because this was an archival episode. We'll have links in the show notes to everything that we talked about. So check those out there. Also links to where you can connect with us and all that good stuff. And like we always say around here, see something good. See something good. Yo it to yourself. See something good. We will be back next week with some more fun stuff. Tune in then. Make sure you're subscribed. Give a rating. Tell a friend. See you soon.